0: Welcome to Allons Travailler, where I, Eric Van Mecklen, read important books and write essays and book reviews, giving my reflections and thoughts. Today's review is called Liberty's Dim Light, a book review of China Medieval's October, The Story of the Russian Revolution and China Medieval's Iron Council. Liberty's Dim Light, book review of China Mieville's October, The Story of the Russian Revolution, and Iron Council. China Mieville holds a PhD in international relations from the London School of Economics, is a member of the Socialist Democratic Party in England, and the founding editor of Salvage, a quarterly of revolutionary arts and letters. He wrote Between Equal Rights, a Marxist theory of international law, but is perhaps best known as an author of fiction, where for his novels he has won, among other awards, the Arthur C. Clarke, Hugo, and Locus Literary Honors. His latest writing is a narrative history, October the story of the Russian Revolution, arriving on the centenary of the pivotal year. After a useful prehistory detailing the autocratic monarchy engaged in the unpopular First World War, May proceeds month by month through to the October uh, <clears throat> October 1917 takeover of the Winter Palace and the beginnings of the world's first worker state. In exploring the revolution, Mabel expertly moves from St. Petersburg to Moscow and beyond, just as the drama and strange impacts and influences radiated outward like a disjointed music ensemble's noise and return to the crucible in broken wavelengths. Even though 55 names and descriptions are included in the glossary of names and material, and their presence in the narrative is real, when he can, able tends to focus on Vladimir Ilyich Ilyanov, better known to history as Lenin. And, to considerable but lesser extent, Lev Bronstein or Trotsky. After a description of Martov, who was later the leader of the Mensheviks, Lenin is described, quote, A man easily mythologized, idolized, demonized. To his enemies he is a cold, mass murdering monster, to his worshippers a godlike genius, to his comrades and friends, a shy, quick laughing lover of children and cats. Capable of occasional verbal OGs and lumbering metaphors, he is a plain rather than a sparkling wordsmith. Yet he compels, even transfixes in print and speech by a sheer intensity and focus. Throughout his life, opponents and friends will excoriate him for the brutality of his takedowns, his flint and ruthlessness. All agree that that he is a prodigious force of will. To an extent unusual, even among that ilk who live and die for politics, Lenin's blood and marrow are nothing else. Mievo's description of Trotsky is similarly colorful. Trotsky is... Hard to love, but impossible not to admire. He is charismatic and abrasive, brilliant and persuasive and divisive and difficult. After introducing the setting, serfdom is a living memory, and a few miles beyond the city's peasants still dwell in medieval squalor of this pre-1900 St. Petersburg and greater Russia, and several more characters, Mabel perhaps the reader with a short prehistory of the political culture and Marxist thought in the latter years of the 19th century. Here, Mievel is in his element, having previously written Between Equal Rights, a Marxist theory of international law, a left critique of the discipline digging into the theoretical debates of Marxism's foundations. As Mievel swiftly describes legal and economist Marxists, I had the sense I was in capable hands. These groups come against a problem. Quote, They have come up against a conundrum of left catechism. How does a movement go about being socialist in an unripe country with a weak and marginal capitalism, a vast and backward peasantry, and a monarchy that has not had the decency to undergo its bourgeois revolution? How, indeed. Mabel proceeds to find a path through these questions at opportune and not-obtrusive moments as actors, individuals, and constituents, and parties— attempt to influence their realities in the pivotal months of 1917. Miebel carries us through 1917 expertly while explicitly warning that his work is neither expert or specialist. His narrative style, in contrast to descriptions of Nicholas II, is Elan, delivered in the present tense and alive. Lenin is important to our discussion of totalitarianism because the Bolshevik revolution he galvanized, either led to or was followed by decades of Stalin. This is already simplifying dangerously though. When Lenin died, Petrograd was soon renamed Leningrad. Mythology of Lenin during the Soviet era and the party simplification of what he stood for and wanted was later commoditized in that era with the erection of monuments and the labeling of street corners. The commodity of Lenin Part of Mievel's work is to find a way to cut against the mythology and the commodity of Lenin to read his work and look again. We get the sense that Mievel has read much of Lenin's work, and many other Marxists, like, for example, Trotsky's 1905, and Results and Prospects. For efficiency's sake, Mievel leaves out the many Leninist writings from his further reading section, instead drawing attention to the following categories. General Histories... Theoretical Discussions and the Collected Volumes, Anarchists, Bolsheviks, Mensheviks, SRs, Beyond Petrograd, Eyewitnesses, Memories, and Primary Voices, and other, including Anatoly Lunacharsky's Revolutionary Silhouettes in 1923, which lent Mieville his Lenin description in the book's opening chapter. Exposure to the volume of text could overwhelm or, in my case, inspire an energy of curiosity. Mievo comments on each of these further readings. His brief of Victor Serge's Year One of the Russian Revolution in 1930 serves almost as a summary of the emotional feel with which one leaves October. First, Serge's own comment on quote, The germ of all Stalinism was in Bolshevism at its beginning was correct but incomplete. Bolshevism also contained many other germs, a mass of other germs, and those who lived through the enthusiasm of the first years of the first victorious Socialist Revolution ought not to forget it. Mieville adds on to Serge. This wonderful repulse to the canard has deservedly become celebrated, so much so that it is now something of an anti-Stalinist socialist cliché. What too often seems to escape the notice of especially Trotskyist admirers is that as well as defending the Bolshevik tradition, the passage allows that it contained authoritarian tendencies, which Serge did not hesitate to criticize, quote. One can stand back at this juncture and notice one thing, if nothing else. Thoughtful individuals have been ardently debating the precursors to and the character of totalitarianism for a long time. To Serge's ability to seriously investigate the truth, Mievo follows suit in his analysis of Lenin, writing quote, not that Lenin has never <clears throat> not that Lenin never makes mistakes; he has however an acutely developed sense of when and where to push, how and how hard. End quote. When Mievo recounts the note left by Lenin to his housekeeper before his triumphant return from hiding. Quote, I have gone where you did not want me to go. End quote. It is hard not to smile. In Mieville's preceding 300 pages, he has gone where most readers did not want him to go into the fine print of Duma and Soviet meeting minutes. For the careful reader, however, there is reward in attending to Mieville's focus, particularly on votes. Lenin's abstention from one decisive vote in particular shows both his constant political nature and opportunism. Mievel writes, What particularly distinguishes him is his sense of the political moment, of fracture and traction. To his comrade Lenacharski, he quote, Raises opportunism to the level of genius, by which I mean the kind of opportunism which can seize on the precise moment and which always knows how to exploit it for the unvarying objective of the revolution. What is to be done? Mayville has his heroes and villains, but allows the reader to be present and a thinking participant in, this, in the conversation. Distinctions and detail are provided into the inner workings and interchanges between the Bolsheviks, Mensheviks, SRs, anarchists, cadets, Cossacks, and conservatives. There are interstices here, too. Lev Bronstein is case in point. The, quote, hard to love but impossible not to admire, Trotsky, lies somewhere in between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks in the years between 1905 and 1917, and is the most prominent theorist of permanent revolution. These are living, thinking people, and pensive, striving souls are apt to change their minds, to negotiate new avenues, to break alliances, and switch tracks on the locomotive of history. These are switchmen of the political moment. Giving the reader space to enter the conversation is a major stylistic and thematic point borne out. Mievel does not want to fall into the trap of opportunist historians who make definitive gestures about Lenin or the impetus of the revolution, its result. Mievel is drawn to trains, trash, and political transformation, embracing the complexity. If Mievel's take could be summed up, it might be thus... The Bolsheviks tried to get there and by taking the risk hoped to change the situation, but they couldn't do enough. This sentiment brings to mind William Morris in The Dream of John Ball. Men fight and lose the battle, and the thing that they fought for comes about in spite of defeat, and when it comes, it turns out not to be what they meant, and other men have to fight for what they meant under another name. In Mievel's epilogue, he compares his own efforts to Chernochevsky's two rows of dots concluding the fourth dream, section seven, in What is to be Done. Mievel writes that, quote, For these who cleave to it, a paradox of actually existing revolution is that in its potential for utter reconfiguration, it is precisely beyond words, a messianic interruption, one that emerges from the quotidian. Unsayable, yet the culmination of everyday exhortations. Beyond language and of it, beyond representation and not. Chernashevsky's dots, then, are one iteration of a strange story. This book has been an attempt at another. Striving for freedom. Notably, Miebel's October isn't his first take on this question of revolutionary potential. Here's an excerpt from the third book in his fictional Boss Log Universe, Iron Council, where a cast of desperately motivated characters collectively fights for change. Mate with the spiders, the old man says. It's time to change. Everything is still. Only the bridge is being built. And now in the evenings, when the bridge crews come off their work, some cross the ravine to their sister encampment because they want to see the trouble. They come, hotchy and spines, Apes trained and constrained by remaking, remade men given simian bodies. They come to see the strikes. They tour from one to another. The newspaper men on the perpetual train, who have been dispatching their stories when there are messengers, suddenly have something new to cover. One takes a heliotype of the picket of women. I don't know what I'll say, he says to Judah. They don't want me talking about tarts in the quarrel. Take all the plates you can, says Judah. This is something you should remember. This is important, he says, and it is his oddity, his beatific innard, that speaks. His breath leaves him a moment at the thought that he can hear its words. We are all spiders' children, says the mad old man. This is something you should remember draws attention. The diverse group described in the passage an alliance of sorts started by women just as was the 1905 movement in Russia, goes on to commandeer the capitalist, exploitative train and lay their own tracks across a wild landscape. If one reads October and Iron Council in close proximity, as I did, one will have difficulty not seeing the debates, quarrels, and outright infighting of and between the Bolsheviks, Mensheviks, social revolutionaries, and their indices. The group picks up tracks beyond them and behind them to lay the next. The perpetual train changes shape and form as it steams on. Finally, the collective revolutionaries return to the city the track set off from, but the leader of the movement freezes the train in place before it can take its effect. On the edge of the city, the train stands instead as a lasting monument. In the epilogue of October, Mievo writes... The question for history is not only who should be driving the engine, but where. In the closing pages of Iron Council, it seems he's already answered his own question. Quote, Years might pass and we will tell the story of the Iron Council and how it was made, how it made itself and went, and how it came back and is coming, is still coming. Women and men cut a line across the dirt land and dragged history out and back across the world. They are still with shouts setting their mouths, and we usher them in. They are coming out of the trenches of rock toward the brick shadows. They are always coming. Quote. The reason they are always coming, rings and emotes and emanates is because the revolution is halted by its instigator in a dramatic golem tree, creating a lasting monument because the time wasn't ripe. And one can't help but be reminded of the unripeness of 1917 in Russia or Europe for socialism, but also of, as Mirko offers in response to a question about the book, the way we look at the world as we sit within its capitalist structures. He finishes with a flurry, writing, We will be dreaming different dreams, and in the process of changing it, we will change. To me, this striving for freedom seems to stand in contrast to the constant defense against autocracy in motion in this essay's essay's opening. Perhaps there are competing elements in our psyche, souls, hearts, and bodies. Mieville's is a deeper exploration and introduction than any comment Putin's Russia will likely give on the subject when the bell strikes 100 years on from that revolutionary moment. While Mieville does criticize Lenin and the Bolshevik movement, Mievel's story ends before we arrive at some of Lenin's larger, historic mistakes. To detractors, Lenin and the Bolshevik Revolution led inevitably to Stalin. Mievel simply wants us to remember that it wasn't inevitable. Next week, we will be reviewing Life 3.0, On Being Human in the Age of AI, by Max Tedmark. I'll see you then.